uh, we're blessed to have a number of visitors with us this morning. And uh, the perspective that you hear me preaching may be something that is uh, the first time you've ever heard it. So uh, most, of, most of the evangelical world today believes that uh, the book of Revelation is talking about events that are going to happen in the future. I, in fact, believe, along with a, a number of other people throughout history who believe that the book of Revelation was largely fulfilled in the first century that uh, what is revealed in the book of Revelation is not, not primarily what's going to happen in the future, but uh, what happened in the past and the way that God replaced the old covenant with the new covenant. And uh, how that the old Jerusalem is replaced with the new Jerusalem. God describes himself in the old covenant as being a husband to Israel, but in the new covenant he is described and he is, uh, the, the church is the bride of Christ, using the church in the general sense that it is occasionally used, referring to all convert, converted persons. And uh, so I think that the book of Revelation is a very dramatic, very poetic, mostly metaphorical, as opposed to literal, mostly metaphorical telling of the events that happened in the first century. And uh, personally, I find that that, is, that makes it much more relevant to my own life, um, that I, I consider that the sort of mistakes that were made by people here are mistakes that I am liable to, the kind of acts of courage that the people in Revelation make are acts of courage that I may participate in, rather than just setting my jaw and saying, well, in the future, if, if there ever is a a beast that arises, I am resolved that I will not take his mark on my hand or on my forehead. As I mentioned, the last time that I preached from Revelation chapter 13, when we looked at the mark of the beast, uh, I, I intimated that there's pressure from governments today. I believe that the beast that rises from the sea represent the corrupt government of Rome uh, in general, and specifically the corrupt government of Rome as personified in Nero took a little time to explain to you how that the number 666 can be uh, uh, derived from the, the numerical equivalent of uh, spelling out the Nero's name in, uh, in Hebrew, Hebrew letters, which were used for numerals as well. It's too complicated for me to get into now. If that piques your curiosity, then you could access the sermon online that I preached two weeks ago and there will be a fuller explanation of that. But I concluded that sermon with saying that there are pressures from the government today that would try to squeeze us into certain ways of thinking and make us avoid certain ways of thinking and not talk about certain things. And uh, that uh, the, mark, the mark of the beast on the forehead means that we are controlling the way that you think. And the mark of the beast on the hand indicates we are controlling the things that you do. Well, in this passage of Scripture, we'll see that the beast is not the only person who marks people. We'll see that the lamb also marks people. Now, I may have mentioned this the last time, that in marking people on... Well, I did mention, I remember now. In marking people on the forehead and on the hand, the, the beast and the image of the beast, which I take to be corrupt... 
uh, leaders of Israel who cooperated with the Roman government and brought about the downfall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. So I mentioned that there is a kind of parody making fun of something that God required of Old Covenant Israel. He required that they would keep the law of God as frontlets between their eyes and as, um, I forget the word that he uses, but something like bracelets on their hands. And so uh, Hasidic Jews, uh, if you ever see pictures of them, uh, like in New York, uh, some, some of the Hasids are the people who uh, wear the, the beaver hats, but there are others, and they often will have long curly locks because, because of the, their interpretation of an Old Testament scripture. Uh, they will have, they'll be wearing something like little headbands, and it contains a little scroll with scripture in it, and something similar on the wrist. Well, that's, uh, that's one of the things that Jesus criticized of the leaders in his day when he said, you make your phylacteries broad. The name for these little uh, ornaments that contain scriptures is, is phylacteries. And Jesus was saying, you want everybody to know that you're wearing these things. And so you make them really big. And uh, it's just another way that you are showing off. I think that when the Lord says you're to uh, write these, these words upon the doorposts of your door and you're to wear them as frontlets between your eyes and as a memorial on your hand, I think that's all figurative language that he's saying this you haven't fulfilled the word if you just put a headband on that's got a scripture verse on it. How much more significant is it if you are thinking in accordance with the word of God? You haven't fulfilled the scripture if you're just wearing a little wristband with a scripture verse in it. How much more significant is it if, if everything that you do with your hands is guided by, by the Lord? And uh, so the priests in Jesus, the priests in the Old Testament were required to wear a headband, part of their gear, and there was a little gold plate there that had written on it, holiness to the Lord. So that was a literal piece of the, uh, the garments that they were supposed to wear, holiness to the Lord. And so it is kind of making fun of that, that the, the beast that rises from the sea and the beast that rises from the earth, which again, I take to be uh, Imperial Rome in general, Nero in particular, and then the beast that rises from the earth, the, uh, the, the Jewish leaders that cooperated with Imperial Rome and helped to hasten the downfall of Jerusalem. Uh, it, it's a parody then that, that the indication that you are cooperating with their system is that you bear the mark of the beast on your forehead or on your hand. But now we see, as I already said in chapter 14, that the beast is not the only one who marks those who follow him on the forehead. Let's see what it says in Hebrews, in Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So... You may know that in the original manuscripts of the Bible, there are no chapter divisions, there are no verses, and so in reading this uh, without the chapter divisions, this would be quite a bit more, it'd have punch to it. It would be quite a bit more shocking. The last thing we read in, in our chapter 13 is uh, in verse 17, no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. 
This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. And then, and then immediately you go into, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. That is, that is the cresting of the sun over the horizon after a very dark night. I mean, chapter, we've been in this in chapter 12, 13, and 14, and it's mostly been how that the bad guys are flexing their muscles. And uh, we may at this point be tempted to say, wow, is there any good happening? And then here we see the lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000. This is not the first time we've encountered the 144,000 earlier in the book. There was a disaster that was about to be released, and uh, there was a, a loud voice from heaven that said, do not, do not release the four angels until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 12,000 sealed from each of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. And then it mentions, uh, mentions 12 tribes, leaves out Dan, but uh, mentions 12 tribes, and uh, a, a total of 12 times 12 times 12,000 from each tribe equals 144,000. And uh, I explained at that time that the, that the Lord has preserved for himself in the midst of all of this destruction that is going to happen to old Jerusalem and to old Israel, amidst all that destruction, the Lord has not left himself without witnesses. And here are 144,000 of them. I, I believe that it's a symbolic number. Here, here's a great number of people that have been brought out of Israel. I think there's strong evidence that these, this may be a figurative number for all of the Jews who were martyred in uh, all of this mess that happened with the Roman war against Jerusalem. Uh, but as I've told you before, there were actually more Jews that were killed by Jews than there were Jews that were killed by the Roman government. They just broke out terrible... Uh, uh, intramural fighting among the Jews, and they killed one another uh, in, in a most uh, shocking way. And you can read about that in the works of Josephus. Uh, but uh, I think that it's very likely that these 144,000 represent those, those true Israelites who followed Jesus and, uh, and that were murdered, that were killed because they followed after Jesus. I've mentioned to you before that uh, the Lord Jesus told his people in the Olivet Discourse, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then if you're on the housetop, don't stay there. Uh, pray that it's not going to be on the Sabbath. Woe to women who are pregnant or nursing, and, uh, because you've really got to get out of town fast. And you know, all that advice doesn't help if there's a nuclear bomb that's been dropped. It doesn't matter if you, if you stop to get your coat or not. If a nuclear bomb has been dropped, you're going to die. And that kind of advice also is useless if you're talking about the return of the Son of God and you're trying to find mercy. It's no good for you to say, well, I'm going to run away and I'm going, I'm going to beat it because I'm not going to go downstairs and get my coat. But that does make sense if what Jesus is saying is happening is there is a human army that is going to come and cause great depredation in the city. And if you get out of town quick, then you might escape. But do we think that the escape that the Lord has provided is just the escape to live a few more years on, life, on earth? 
Is that the way we think of God's deliverance? When we think of the three Hebrew children who are delivered out of the fiery furnace, that's amazing. I mean, that's a great testimony to God's, to God's great power and grace. But those guys didn't live forever. They lived a few more years and then they died. When Daniel was threatened with being thrown into the lion's den and he obeyed the Lord and he was thrown into the lion's den and the lions never ate him. He was already an old man, maybe in his 80s when he gets thrown into the lion's den. Very an, a very old man. So is that, is that all the reward he gets? The lions don't eat him? He lives another five or ten years. Maybe he gets cancer and, and suffers. Is this what you saved me from the lions for? And those Jews who escaped out of Jerusalem and went to the town of Pella, there were many, many of them who were saved. But is that all the reward they get? They get a few more years of life, a few more years to, to toil and to suffer hunger and to uh, have sleepless nights and and to go through who knows what kind of diseases and effects of old age before they finally collapse into the grave? Is that what, you, is that what we want? Is that deliverance? No, there's something better than that. And this chapter teaches us that there's something better than that. Even if you are not among those who escape to Pella, even if you're not among those who get delivered from the mouth of the lion, even if you're not among those who are delivered from the heat of the fiery furnace, there's something much better waiting for you than five or ten years more of life on earth, or 50 or 60 or 70 years of life. There's something better. And that's what we see here when we see the Lamb Remember when we saw him earlier, he was the lamb standing as though he had been slain. And now there are with him 144,000, very likely martyrs who also have been slain because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. And we see that these are a people who are sealed and owned by the Lord. That's one of the things of having a, a, a seal on your forehead, which is the way that it's described earlier. Wait until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And now we see we have the name of the Father, the name of the Lamb. Uh, I, I have in, in my life collected a couple of things that were ostensibly made more valuable if they were signed. So I used to collect paperweights. I, if you ever look in my office at the windowsill, I've got the results of all those paperweights. So I think they're very pretty. And uh, if I saw one in Goodwill that I thought was pretty, I bought it. I, I never did pay very much for any of my paperweights. But I, I, I was around paperweights enough to know that if one is signed by the person who made it, it's more valuable. Signing says, hey, I made this. Uh, or I, I have liked coffee cups in the past, handmade coffee cups. And if a potter, if a potter throws a, a, a cup by hand, then he usually signs his name on the bottom. And so, you know, if I was in Goodwill or something and I saw what looked like a handmade coffee cup, I'd turn it over and see if it was signed by the, see if it was signed by the, the potter. What a seal did in the old days, our signature does today. It's almost exactly the same. So, like a seal, a signature says, 
I own this to be my work. I own this to be true. We still have to sign documents that are important. And by signing, we're saying, I, I uh, affirm that everything in this document is true. And we sign our name. And uh, when the Lord signs his name to a person, he is saying, this one's mine. This is my work. It's more valuable because I'm signing it. And uh, here we have people, uh, people who have been disowned by the world, but God says, no, that's my work. I have my name written on their foreheads. I have sealed them, they're mine. Not only are they sealed, but they are singing. Look at what it says in verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, so it's loud, and like the sound of loud thunder, really loud, but all the while beautiful. The voice that I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. I've not quite been able to capture that in my imagination because harps are always very soft, stringed instruments. And even if there were a thousand harps playing at one time, it's hard for me to imagine how that they would have a sound so loud that it would be like loud thunder. But uh, I think the emphasis here is this is hearty, gusty singing, but it's also beautiful. They're not losing their tone and becoming a little pitchy in their exuberance. It really is beautiful singing. And uh, this leads me to take a few minutes to talk about how important singing is. Singing is something that happens in heaven. Singing is something that happens when you're going to war. I I doubt if it happens in our troops today. Uh, We have been... I don't know the word to use. We have been robbed of the power of singing in everyday life. About the only place that I ever sing with other people is when I come to church. But uh, singing used to be far more prevalent. And uh, during, I suspect that recorded music has had a lot to do with it. So I, I praise God for recorded music. I think it would just be painful to hear Beethoven's Ninth Symphony only once and then just try to remember what it sounded like for the rest of your life. So I'm thankful that I'm able to, if I want to, go home today and listen to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. But I think one of the bad effects of having recorded music so available to us is that music has become largely a personal thing, even further exaggerated by, by personal listening devices like headphones and earbuds and so on. And uh, that it's not something that we, we share with other people in the way that it used to be shared. So I'm thankful that when we come together at church, we still sing. And I, I may be imagining it, but I think that the singing at Bullet Lick is getting better and better. And I think that people are singing more heartily and that more people are entering into the singing. Uh, there, are, there are many advantages to singing. So, first of all, it just takes some physical exertion for you to really sing. And I have found in my life that just the effort of raising my voice to sing makes some good things happen in me spiritually. I've found the same thing that happens when I preach without amplification. Uh, 
So the, just, the, just the effort that is required to lift up my voice enough so that it's going to be heard is something that kind of gets me excited. And it's not just a physical excitement. And uh, so I, and there's no point in us pretending like we are not physical as well as spiritual. And what we do physically affects us spiritually. And it goes the other way as well. What's happening to us spiritually affects us physically. Um, and and I, I'm tempted to preach a whole sermon on that, but now I'm just focusing on this one thing, that singing has the power to engage us emotionally in a way that's very important for our worship to be genuine. You know, I've pointed out to you before that about one-third of the Bible is poetry. Poetry is not the most effective means of communicating cold facts. What is poetry good at? Poetry is good at stirring up emotion. And one-third of the Bible is poetry. The Lord is teaching us by this. You don't need to just think the truth. You need to feel the truth. And you've not understood the truth until you have felt the truth. And so... Music, is for many of us, for most of us, music is a powerful way to help us engage emotionally with the things that we are saying. Music also helps us to remember the things that we have said. I almost always have a song playing in my head, day and night. I remember that this morning when I woke up, I was thinking of a Beatles song, and uh, so, and so I, I, this morning I've been thinking and singing that Beatles song all the while that I've been, you know, preparing for preaching this morning and, and everything. Here's this song that's going on in my head. Uh, well, that's one of the things that music does very well. It helps you to remember things, and after the voices have died, this melody still continues to, to ring in your head. Also, singing is an opportunity for us to all be thinking and saying the same thing at the same time. And uh, so it's very powerful for a number of reasons. Uh, And so it is not surprising at all, if you think about it, that throughout history, oppressed people, like slaves working in the cotton fields, have have been singing. They sing uh, that people who are under strenuous uh, physical uh, conditions, like Soldiers in the Revolutionary War or soldiers fighting in the war between the states. That there were songs that they sang as they were going along. They would sing. And the Lord's people are a singing people. And uh, and it's not just now. It's not just on earth, but in heaven that singing goes on. Apparently, God likes music. In Psalm 22... We have a very vivid description of the suffering that the Lord Jesus undergoes. It's the psalm that begins, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from the voice of my groaning? And then there are all these descriptions of the agony that he endures on the cross. And then you get about halfway through and you come across this. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Jesus is a singer. And out of his agony, he sings, he sings a song that is appropriate. Not all religious songs are happy, clappy songs. Some religious songs are 
God, I am so depressed, I don't know what's wrong with me. Let me just talk to myself for a little while. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in the Lord. And there are songs like that, that the people of God sing together and help. Wow, did somebody else feel that way? I thought I was supposed to be happy all the time. No, sometimes, sometimes there's such a profound sadness that comes over you and you don't even know why. But that has been the experience of the people of God. And we encourage one another when we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're teaching and admonishing one another when we do that. And that kind of, that kind of worship goes on not just on earth, but also in heaven. So these 144,000 who are with the Lamb, they are sealed, they're signed, they're delivered, signed, sealed, and delivered. They're with the Lord there on Mount Zion, and they are singing. They are singing loudly. They're not singing half-heartedly. And they're singing. the sound of their singing is like the sound of many harpists playing on their harps. And then note what they are singing in verse 3. They were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. So they're singing, they're singing something new. Can we get a clue as to what they're singing? No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So there's something special about these 144,000. They've had an experience that the angels haven't had. Apparently, they have had an experience that the four living creatures have not had. And possibly even they, are having an ex- they have had an experience that those, 12, those 24 elders before the throne have not had. They've been redeemed. The angels have not been redeemed. So the angels who stand in heaven never fell. The angels that did fall have not been redeemed. And so the the redemption that the Lord has accomplished for his people is something that, as far as we can tell, is unique among the, the persons of the universe. Uh, He has redeemed humans. He has not redeemed other intelligent creatures who departed from Him. So they can't learn the song, but those who have been redeemed can learn the song. They are signed. They are singing. And now in verses 4 and 5, we see that they have been sanctified. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Now, this is metaphorical language. This does not mean that if you are married, that, and because you have had uh, marriage relations with your spouse, that you can't be in heaven, or you're unholy. The, uh, the Bible teaches that the marriage bed is undefiled, and uh, so it is, not, it is not a sin to... Uh, participate in the uh, in the the pleasures of marriage. In fact, uh, the Bible encourages that it should take place, and that this is one of the main reasons that you do get married. 
is so that you can enjoy God's gift of physical intimacy that is reserved only for the marriage relationship. In the book of Revelation, there are some bad people who are identified as prostitutes. And so, uh, when, when the Bible here says that they have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins, it is, it is saying in the book of Revelation, they have not participated in these illicit uh, sexual liaisons with the bad people. So this is mentioned uh, in, in one of the letters to one of the churches. The Lord says, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. Who, who, she is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. And so I will, I will throw her under a sickbed. Those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, and I will strike her children dead. I think that that is primarily talking about spiritual adultery, that we are departing from the Lord. This is the way that uh, the Lord describes Israel's apostasy from him. And in the, in the book of Ezekiel, sometimes he gets downright embarrassingly graphic about how Israel has lusted after her idolatrous neighbors. Uh, it, it's the sort of thing that you would hesitate to read in public. I know that's going to make some of you rush home and search through the book of Ezekiel to find what I'm talking about. Uh, but, and, and when you find it, you'll say, oh, Brother Jim is right. That is pretty graphic. Uh, but he, he would describe their departing from him and engaging with false religions as being an act of adultery. So I think that's what's in mind here. These are people who have not succumbed to the temptations and pressures and lures that come from the beast and come from the image of the beast, which rises out of the land and, and puts pressure to uh, engage in, uh, sec- in, in spiritual immorality. They, they haven't done that. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. When I was a boy, we used to sing at my home church a song called Footsteps of Jesus. And um, some of you perhaps know that, and I think it's probably still in our hymn books. But footsteps of Jesus that make the pathway glow, we will follow the steps of Jesus where'er they go. And then each stanza uh, identifies various places that the steps of Jesus may lead us. Um, I think a little more powerful is the, uh, the lines from another poem. Uh, I think I know the author, but I won't say it right now because I could be wrong. When he says, uh, By the light of burning martyrs, Christ, thy bleeding feet we track, toiling up new calvaries ever, with the cross that turns not back. New occasions teach new duties. Time makes ancient truth uncouth. They must upward still and onward who would keep abreast of truth. And uh, <clears throat> so there are some, some things in that stanza that may need a little explanation. But the point that I brought it up is that he's saying sometimes when we follow the footsteps of Jesus, they are bleeding. They are bleeding footsteps. And he's calling us to follow him in a course of living that will result in our also bleeding. 
And so they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. That's one of the things that makes me think these could be Jewish martyrs because they're redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God. These, uh, these first martyrs that were, that were killed because they were followers of Jesus. And in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. So they're not people who behave in a hypo- hypocritic way. They're people who say that they're followers of Jesus, and then they back it up with their lives. Well, when I prepared for this morning, I prepared, I prepared to preach through the entire, uh, the entire chapter, and obviously that's not going to happen. I'm going to stop here. My points of application were drawn from uh, what is in the whole chapter, but we can see some things here. We can see some things here. Is your thinking and your action, are your, are your thinking and action characterized by the work of the Lord? Has He signed His name on your forehead? Are you someone who is endeavoring to think and to live in accordance with the teaching of Jesus Christ? Uh, Do you hold your life on earth so dear that you would turn away from Jesus for a few more miserable years of what? Or a few more pleasurable years even? Do you judge whether or not God has been faithful to you and to your family And judge him harshly if he has taken someone away from you that you loved? This past week I was uh, teaching my my class yesterday to the students in China. And my, uh, my task yesterday was to talk about the fifth commandment, which is honor your father and your mother. And then it's a commandment that has a promise with it. Honor honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God gives you. So the catechism asks the question, what is the the reason annexed to the fifth commandment? The answer is the reason annexed to the fifth commandment is a promise of long life and prosperity as far as it shall serve for God's glory and their own good to all such as keep this commandment. That's a very good condition. It's not an unconditional promise of long life and prosperity. It's a conditional. There's the condition of honoring your father and your mother, but there's also the condition of as far as it shall serve for God's glory and their own good to all such as keep this commandment. And uh, I gave them the example that I'm going to give you now. You may remember that the first apostate king of Israel after the kingdom divided was a man named Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And uh, Jeroboam's son was sick, and so Jeroboam told his wife, disguise yourself and go to the prophet and ask him, is our son going to get better? Now, the guy must not have been all that bright if he is going to go to a prophet who can tell whether or not your son is going to recover, and he says, but we're going to fool him by you putting on some different clothing. And, uh, but anyway, that's what she did, and God spoke to the prophet and said, the wife of Jeroboam is getting ready to visit you. Here's what you're going to say to her. So when she comes, I know they never had sidewalks, but I can just imagine her opening the picket fence and walking up the sidewalk and uh, getting ready to knock, and from inside the, the, uh, the prophet says, come in, wife of Jeroboam. So she comes in. I know why you've come. Your son is going to die as soon as you uh, walk back and cross the threshold into the city because 
He's the only one in the whole house of Jeroboam that is pleasing to the Lord. He's the only one that God likes, so God's going to uh, take him home early. And then that reminds me of what it says in Isaiah chapter 57, verses 1 and 2. The righteous are taken away and no one lays it to heart. But you ought to consider that the righteous are taken away so that they might be spared from the evil days that are coming. Don't make it a test of God's faithfulness in your life or in your family's life. Does he allow my loved one to live a few more years? Will he heal me of this sickness? Will he give me a few more years on earth? God has something better planned for his children than a few more years on earth. And if in his wisdom he sees fit to take me home early or take you home early, then then let's die like sons and daughters of God. Let's don't die whimpering and squirming and, and uh, raising our little fists to God and saying, if you loved me, you wouldn't do this. Instead, let us humbly submit to the will of the Lord as our Lord did and say, if possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. God has good things in store for those who are faithful to him now. Another point of application that we can take from this is consider the power of music and how you might take better advantage of it in your own life. And uh, so give that some thought. It may be that you've got a hymn book lying around the house and uh, you may say, well, no, they don't ever sing my favorite hymns at church. Well, there's nothing that keeps you from singing your favorite hymns at home and in your family. And you can uh, sing some of those songs and make it part of your devotion And uh, take advantage of the opportunity that we have when we come together as the people of God to unite our voices and uh, to inspire our spirits and all be saying the same thing to the Lord at the same time. Let me say just a word uh, concerning how you do get ready for dying nobly. You must receive God's terms of peace now. And God's terms of peace now are that you should repent of your sin and receive His Son as your Lord. That means that He rules over you from this point on. Trust in Him to take care of you in life and in death, and He will. Jim Bob, come lead us in a song. An opportunity for us to unite our voices together and saying the same thing and encouraging our spirits in the right way.